For a long time, I have wanted to bring our church a biographical sketch because I, Debbie and I have been listening to John Piper's biographical sketches for a long time. We've probably listened to about 25 of them. And we are usually when we go on a trip, twice a year we go on a trip and we'll put one in our car and we'll listen to it on our way out of town. And it's so encouraging. So I thought if it ministers to me that much, maybe it'll minister to you that much. And if there's anybody that I could present his life, it would be the man I'm going to do today. Um, if I have any hero in the faith, I would probably say it's George Whitfield. If there's any period of time I could go back like in a time tunnel machine and go back and just be on a hillside or out in the fields listening to someone preach, I'd want to go back to the 1700s and I would want to listen to George Whitfield preach a sermon. How many of you have ever heard the name of George Whitfield? Okay, about half of us. How many of you know very much about him? Debbie does a little bit. Okay, Jerome does some. That's really interesting to me because though the name of Whitfield may not be very well known to us, in his own day, it was extremely well known. In fact, in the American colonies, George Whitfield was more famous than George Washington. 80% of the colonists had seen and heard him preach. Everybody knew the name of George Whitfield. In England, in Scotland, in Ireland, in Bermuda, and in the American colonies. He was the, the most widely traveled evangelist of his day. He reached more people for Christ in his day than any other person. So, just to, to demonstrate to you how great of an influence he made during his lifetime, I want to recount a story to you. So, he died in 1770. In 1835, so that's 65 years later, two prominent English Baptists, Francis Cox and James Hovey, were on a visit to the United States from England. And when they were in New England, they purposely went off route to go to Newberry Point, Massachusetts, because it was there in the Presbyterian Church that George Whitfield was buried underneath the center aisle of the church. So they went down there, and this was a time when you could actually descend into the basement, and you could open up the coffin, and you could look at the remains. So they did that. They went down into the sepulcher. They took out the skull of George Whitfield, and they reminisced about what God had done through this man. And then they spent some time together in prayer, and then they put the skull back in the coffin, closed the lid, and went back up. About 15 years earlier, another Englishman had stolen a part of his right forearm and taken it back to England. Let me find this for you. <laughs> they, they took it, he took it back to England and, um, just because there was almost a superstition about the powers that were in this man, that how God had used him so mightily that people wanted something, some of his remains about um, in the 1860s, as our Union soldiers were marching off to war, oftentimes they would take a detour and they would go to that same Presbyterian church and they would tear off pieces of his clerical gown and they'd pin it to their 
um, their uniforms as they went into battle. They thought it would give them favor with God. Maybe they wouldn't die in battle if they had Whitfield's <laughs> clerical gown pinned to them. You can see how powerful of an, of an impression this man made on his generation, and even two and three generations from that time. So of all the people that God used in the Great Awakening of the 18th century, there was no other person that gripped the public imagination more than George Whitfield. Usually we remember John Wesley from that period. Wesley is the most well-known because he had a genius for organization and he actually was the leader of the Methodist denomination. And so we know the name of Wesley, but it was actually Whitfield who was the one that was the famous, powerful man that God used. He used Wesley as well, but Whitfield was the one that was in the popular eye. So I want to begin our time just to read some quotes to you of what people said about this man. Some of them are contemporaries of him, and some of them are people that came on later in the scene but knew his life well. So here's the quote of an unbeliever. His name was Henry Singham. He said, well, this is after he heard Whitfield preach as an unbeliever. He said this, he is the most extraordinary man of our times, the most commanding eloquence, unquenchable zeal, and unquestionable piety. Augustus Toplady, who wrote the hymn Rock of Ages, said he was the apostle of the British Empire. John Foster said, with the doubtful exception of Wycliffe, no man probably ever excited in the British islands so profound a sensation in the public mind on the subject of religion. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who next to Whitfield is my second grade hero, he has this to say about him. There is no end to the interest that attaches to such a man as George Whitfield. Often, as I have read his life, I am conscious of a distinct quickening whenever I turn to it. He lived. Other men seemed only to be half alive. But Whitfield was all life, fire, wing, force. My own model, if I may have such a thing and do subordination to my Lord, is George Whitfield, but with unequal footsteps must I follow in his glorious track. So Spurgeon said, if I had any model at all, it was George Whitfield, but I can't even say that I could compare to what God did when he used him. And Spurgeon was the prince of preachers of the 1800s. Do you know the name John Newton? He wrote Amazing Grace, was a pastor also in England, uh, used to be a slave trader, but was converted, and God used him in the ministry. He said this, As a preacher, if any man were to ask me who is second best that I have ever heard, I should be at some loss. But in regard to the first, Mr. Whitfield so far exceeds every other man of my time that I should be at no loss to say he was the greatest preacher I ever heard. So he said, if you ask me who's the second greatest preacher, I'd, I'd really have a hard time figuring that out. But if you ask me who the greatest preacher I ever heard was, there's no question who that was. It was George Whitfield. Robert Murray McShane, Scottish preacher during the 1800s, said, Oh, but for one week of Whitfield's life. He's kind of like me. If I could go back in a time tunnel, I'd like to go back and spend a week just following Whitfield on his travels and be there and experience it. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had this to say, he was beyond any question the greatest English preacher, preacher who has ever lived. Now that's quite, quite a commendation. 
And the Bishop J.C. Ryle said, No Englishman, dead or alive, has ever equaled him. So these people are saying this is the greatest English preacher who has ever lived. Now, that's amazing. We're going we're gonna to learn about this man, and we're going to see a little bit why he was such a great preacher. Let's talk a little bit about his early life and his conversion. He was born December 16th, 1714, in Gloucester, England. He was the son of an inn owner. His father died soon after his birth, and he was raised primarily by his mother. Originally, his mother just assumed that he would take over the running of the inn, but eventually she had greater aspirations for her son, and she wanted to send him to Oxford. And so she scrimped, and she saved, and through the generosity of other friends, he was able to go to Oxford as a servitor. Now, a servitor was a student, but it was sort of like a servant who would serve the upper-class students. So he would get up and make their breakfast, do the dishes, clean up their bedroom, go to school and do all of his material and uh, take his tests and do his studying, then come home and make their dinner, clean up the dishes. You see what I mean? He was a servant at the same time he was going to school there. He went there in 1732, and he early on joined the Holy Club. Have you ever heard about the Holy Club? This is a group of about a dozen men that were attending Oxford, and they thought that through their good works they could attain heaven. And so they would go to the prisons, and they would visit the the men in prison, and they would go and visit the shut-ins and the people who were sick, and they would try to bring them something um, from the Word, but they didn't understand the grace of God. They thought that they had to earn their way or work their way to heaven. And Whitfield started out believing exactly the same thing. All of them did. Uh, Whitfield was the last person to join the Holy Club and the first member of the Holy Club to be converted. Along the way, Charles Wesley, who was John Wesley's brother, gave him a copy of an old book, and I've read this book. It's called The Life of God and the Soul of Man by Henry Scougal. And this little book was used by God to bring Whitfield's conversion. Um, he actually, in one of his sermons, he mentions this. He says, God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. I learned that a man may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet not be a Christian. How did my heart rise and shudder like a poor man that is afraid to look into his account books, lest he should find himself a bankrupt? Shall I burn this book? Shall I throw it down? Or shall I search it? I did search it, and holding the book in my hand, thus addressed the God of heaven and earth, Lord, if I am not a Christian, or if I am not a real one, for Jesus Christ's sake, show me what Christianity is, that I may not be damned at last. God soon showed me, for in reading a few lines further, that true religion is a union of the soul with God and Christ formed within us. A ray of divine light was instantaneously darted in upon my soul, and from that moment, but not till then, did I know that I must become a new creature. He never knew that he had to be born again. You see, the church of his day didn't preach the new birth. They didn't talk about justification by faith. The church of Whitfield's day, the church of England, was dead. They had moral essays that the preachers would repeat, but it was the preachers were very worldly. 
Many of them, if not most of them, were unconverted themselves. This was just a position that you got into if you wanted an easy life. You'd become a minister. And so many unconverted people became ministers. And so they weren't preaching the new birth. Woodfield had no idea that someone had to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he wasn't saved when he read that book, but it began a work of God's conviction upon his soul that lasted about six months. He began to earnestly seek salvation with fastings and prayers night and day. You can read about this. He, he writes about it in his journals. For six months, he, he would deliberately eat the most coarse foods, unsavory foods. He would deliberately go without food for many days. He would go out into the fields and pray for a couple hours at a time, begging God to have mercy on him and make him a new creature. And eventually... About Easter of 1735, it happened. He says, God was pleased to remove the heavy load to enable me to lay hold of his dear son by a living faith and by giving me the spirit of adoption to seal me even to the day of everlasting redemption. Oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of big, full of and big with glory was my soul filled when the weight of sin went off and an abiding sense of the pardoning love of God and a full assurance of faith broke in upon my disconsolate soul. Surely it was the day of mine espousals, a day to be had in everlasting remembrance. At first my joys were like a springtide and overflowed the banks. So you catch something of his joy at coming to know Christ in a living way rather than just trying to earn his way into God's favor. God broke through. He says in one of his sermons about the early days that followed that, Above all, my mind being now more opened and enlarged, I began to read the Holy Scriptures upon my knees, laying aside all other books and praying over, if possible, every line and word. This proved meat indeed and drink indeed to my soul. I daily receive fresh life, light, and power from above. I got more true knowledge from reading the book of God in one month than I could have ever acquired from all the writings of men. So can you picture him up at four or five in the morning? His candle is lit. He's on his knees. His Bible is open. And he's praying over every word and every line that he reads out of the Bible. He's not writing, reading a chapter to get through with it so he can get on with what he wants to. This is his food, his spiritual food. Now that began his early ministry. Soon after his conversion, he began training for the Anglican ministry. He was in the Church of England. He remained in the Church of England his entire life. He began as a deacon the year after his conversion, and then he became a priest. And as a priest, he began to preach on two themes, the new birth and justification by faith alone. And these two subjects were rarely preached in those days, if I just told you. This, this was like a new gospel that people were hearing from the lips of Whitfield, even though the reformers had preached it, the Puritans had preached it, for the last generation they just kind of set it aside and people were ignorant of these truths that were so important. 
The bishops of the various churches were very reticent to allow him to come and speak in their churches because they thought he was a fanatical person. And they called him an enthusiast, enthusiastical. (laughs) And they didn't want him to come into their churches, frankly, because they were so worldly and his holiness, I think, shamed them. And so they didn't want to have anything to do with Whitfield. And Whitfield had such a burning desire to preach the gospel of free grace, he didn't know what to do. All the churches were closed to him until a Welsh Anglican minister gave him this advice. He said, if the pulpits are closed to you, go where the people are. Go and preach in the open air. Now, in this day, nobody did this. Nobody. Nobody. It was was thought of maybe just inappropriate or maybe unseemly for the time to not preach in a church building. But Whitfield decided that he was going to take his advice. And so in February of 1739, he took a step which would dramatically change his ministry for the rest of his life. He went to a town called Kingswood. It was a coal mining town. And he took his stand as the coal miners were about to go into the coal mines in the morning. And he's dressed there in his clerical garb. You know, he's got the smock and the whole thing on, just like an Anglican minister would. And these hardened coal miners, Miners who have never darkened the, 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 the door of a church in their entire life saw this funny-looking man with this clerical garb standing up on a little rock starting to preach to them. And there was about 200 the first day. Within six weeks, there were thousands that were listening to him in the open air. And he has this to say, Having no righteousness of their own to renounce, they were glad to hear of a Jesus who was friend of publicans and who came out to call not the righteous but sinners to repentance. The first discovery of their having been affected were the white gutters made by their tears, which plentifully fell down their black cheeks as they came out of their coal pits. Hundreds and hundreds were soon brought under deep conviction as the event happily ended in a sound and thorough conversion. Can you imagine this? (laughs) I'm sure Eduardo hears about this and thinks, oh, for the days when he could have thousands of listeners and hundreds and hundreds converted under the sound of the gospel. So from this time on, Whitfield would relish field preaching. He would preach on ships, on coffins, in pubs, on horses, windmills, and staircases, as well as in the open air. In 1768, just two years before his death, he said, I love open, bracing air. The following year, the year before he died, he said, It is good to go to the highways and hedges, field preaching forever. Now, I want to share with you some lessons from his life. Of course, Whitfield was not a perfect man. There's never been any perfect man except for Jesus Christ. He made plenty of mistakes, especially early on in his ministry. But in spite of the mistakes he made, God used him in a powerful way during his own time. And I think you can see some reasons for that. Number one, his evangelistic zeal. You could sum up Whitfield's life by saying that he poured it out for the glory of God and the salvation of souls. When you read his life, It's almost like you can't believe what you're reading, really. I've got two volumes of 
the life and ministry of George Whitfield at my house. Each volume is 600 pages. So there's 1,200 pages to this entire story. I've read it through the volume three times. And each time I read it, I also, just like Spurgeon, I've, I feel this quickening. Lord, do it again. <laughs> do it again. But it's almost unbelievable when you read what happened during his life. It is estimated that he preached 18,000 sermons. Now, he only preached for 34 years. I did the math on this. This He preached an average of one and a half sermons every day of his life. Many years, he would preach a thousand sermons. That's three sermons every day of his life during that year. Um, he crossed the Atlantic 13 times, and it didn't, it was no, you know, three or four days to cross the Atlantic during those days. It'd take eight to 10 to 12 weeks, depending on what the weather was like. So he spent over three years of his life just traveling to and from across the Atlantic to America and back. He also went to Scotland 12 times. He went to Ireland, Holland, and Wales as well. And it is difficult to find any figure in church history was so thoroughly spent in gospel ministry and preaching the glories of Christ. He said, I am never better than when I am on the full stretch for God. He would often vomit up blood after preaching. Here are some of the things you'll find in his journals. My continual vomitings are almost killing me, and my only cure is the pulpit. The best preparation for preaching on Sunday is to preach every day of the week. Here's another one. I was honored with having stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cats thrown at me today. Here's another one. I would sooner wear out than rust out. And he did. He died when he was 56 years old. He was younger than I am today when he died. He wore out. He wore his body literally out with with gospel ministry. Now, I don't advocate the kind of pace that he lived because you can't you can't go that long without dying. It just it killed him. But the zeal for the house of Lord literally consumed him. It ate him up. Here's his regular ministerial work in London for the winter season. He couldn't do field preaching because it was just too cold and the weather would not permit it. The people of England built him a chapel. They called it Whitfield's Chapel. It would hold several thousand people. And this is what happened during a, a normal week during the winter. Every Sunday morning, he administered the Lord's Supper to several hundred communicants at half past six, so 6.30 in the morning. Whoever heard of having church at 6.30 in the morning, but he'd have hundreds of people coming at that hour. After this, he read prayers and preached both morning and afternoon. Then he preached again in the evening at half past five and concluded by addressing a large society of widows, married people, young men, and spinsters, all sitting separately in the area of the tabernacle with exhortations suitable to their respective stations. On Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday mornings, he preached regularly at 6 o'clock a.m. On Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday evenings, he delivered lectures. This, it will be observed, made 13 sermons a week. And all this time, he was carrying on a large correspondence with people in almost every part of the world. Let me take this further. Henry Venn, who was a vicar of Huddersfield, a minister of, of that day who knew Whitfield well, expressed amazement. He said this, 
Who would think it possible that a person should person should speak in the compass of a single week and that for years in general 40 hours and in very many 60 and that to thousands and after this labor instead of taking any rest should be offering up prayers and intercessions with hymns and spiritual songs as his manner was in every house to which he was invited now get this an average week he's speaking 40 hours that week now that's how long we go to work that's how much he's preaching. And many weeks, it's 60 hours. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems almost superhuman, the, the effort that he threw himself into the ministry. He was always on the go. He had learned early on to never waste a moment of time. To him, that was sin. But to redeem every moment. He probably took this too far because, like, like I said, he died young. He died, he just literally wore his body out. He didn't take time to rest. You, I've read these volumes, as I said, three times. There are no mentions of taking a day off, taking a vacation. He, his son died, and the very same day his son died, he went out and preached again. I mean, you can the, the guy was talking about, you know, we talk about driven people. This guy was super driven. Super driven. When he, when he was so tired and worn out and ill through his constant labors, he would take a trip to America because he knew that for 8 or 10 or 12 weeks, uh, he would only have to preach once a day. And he'd have time to rest and to read and to write and to collect himself. On the morning of Saturday, September 28th, 1770, the day before he died, Whitfield set out on horseback from Portsmouth in New Hampshire in order to fulfill an engagement to preach at Newburyport on Sunday. But on the way, he was earnestly importuned to preach at a place called Exeter. This happened a lot. People would just beg him, come to our town and preach. You're going, it's on the way anyway. Please come to our town and preach. And so he couldn't say no. He was feeling very ill, but he didn't have the heart to refuse. A friend remarked before he preached that he looked more uneasy than usual and said to him, Sir, you are more fit to go to bed than to preach. To this, Whitfield replied, True, sir. And then turning aside, he clasped his hands together and looking up, he said, Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy work, but not of thy work. If I have not yet finished my course, let me go and speak for thee once more in the fields, seal thy truth, and come home and die. He then went and preached to a very great multitude in the fields from the text 2 Corinthians 13.5. Basically, it says, make sure you're in the faith. Because unless Jesus Christ is in you, you failed the test. Make sure that you're a true Christian. He preached for the space of nearly two hours. It was his last sermon and a fitting conclusion to his whole career. There was an eyewitness there. And they've given us the following account of the closing scene of his life. Here he's about to preach. He rose from his seat and he stood erect. His appearance alone was a powerful sermon. The thinness of his visage, the paleness of his countenance, the evident struggling of the heavenly spark in a decayed body for utterance were all deeply interesting. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was dying. In this situation, he remained several minutes unable to speak. 
He then said, I will wait for the gracious assistance of God, for he will, I am certain, assist me once more to speak in his name. He then delivered perhaps one of his best sermons. The latter part contained the following passage. I go, I go to a rest prepared. My son has given light to many, but now it is about to set, no, to rise to the zenith of immortal glory. I have outlived many on earth, but they cannot outlive me in heaven. Many shall outlive me on earth and live when this body is no more. But there, O thought divine, I shall be in a world where time, age, sickness, and sorrow are unknown. My body fails, but my spirit expands. How willingly would I live forever to preach Christ, but I die to be with him. How brief, comparatively brief has been my life compared to the vast labors which I see before me yet to be accomplished. But if I leave now, while so few care about heavenly things, the God of peace will surely visit you. Then he went back to his place of residence where he was staying the night. It is said some of the people that were listening that day came and knocked on his door and asked if he'd just speak a few more words to them before retiring. And so Whitfield came out with a candle in his hand, spoke a few exhortations to the crowd, went into bed, and died in his sleep that night. He died of asthma. So perhaps he woke up not being able to catch his breath. He was dead in the morning when he, when he got up. So you see this evangelistic zeal in his life. He lived for the salvation of souls. Number two about his life, his power in preaching. He was undoubtedly the means God used in bringing tens of thousands of sinners to Christ during his lifetime. There was one week in London where he received 1,000 letters from people who were under spiritual concern. So as he's preaching, it was a common practice for these notes. People would write notes. Please pray for me, Mr. Whitfield. I desperately need to be saved. And they would pass these notes to the front, and they would collect them, and he would read them afterwards. And one week, he got a 1,000 of them. People under spiritual concern, knowing that they needed to be saved but were lost. Now, why was his preaching so powerful? How could he keep thousands of people in rapt attention for an hour or two while he preached? And this is the amazing thing. His popularity never waned. From the very time he, he his very first sermon, they said he, he drove 13 people raving mad <laughs> that heard this, his first sermon. I don't know if there were, you know, if that was an exaggeration or what, but that was actually reported. From the very first sermon he preached throughout his entire life, his popularity never waned. Thousands upon thousands of people would come to hear him. Now why? How could he do that? Even unbelievers love to hear him preach. Benjamin Franklin was an unbeliever, but he was a personal friend of Whitfield, and he was a frequent hearer, although he didn't believe the gospel that Whitfield preached. Another unbeliever by the name of Hume said it was worth traveling 20 miles to hear Whitfield preach. Now, in those days, it took a whole day to travel 20 miles. This is like going to Las Vegas to hear somebody preach in our cars. You know, would you get in your car and drive, I don't know, 12 hours to go hear somebody preach? That's the kind of hold this man had on his generation. He had incredible natural gifts. We have to admit that. 
Think about what it would take just to project your voice without amplification so that 3,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 or 20,000, sometimes as many as 30,000 people could hear you. It was actually reported that someone distinctly heard him say, and he, Jesus sat down and began to speak to them saying, two miles away across the Delaware River. Now, of course, sound travels better over water, but he had a trumpet-like voice that could project itself almost like, like it was an amplification. This deep, bellowing, melodious voice. This is what Benjamin Franklin said about him. Every accent, every emphasis, every modulation of voice was so perfectly well-tuned and well-placed that without being interested in the subject, one could not help being pleased with the discourse. Do you get what he's saying? Benjamin Franklin wasn't interested in the gospel, but he loved to hear him speak. <laughs> he said, a pleasure of much the same kind with that received from an excellent piece of music. It was pleasurable to hear him speak. He had these natural gifts of speaking. Sarah Edwards, who was Jonathan Edwards' wife, wrote to her brother about Whitfield, who had just visited their church. And I'll, I'll just say this as an aside. When Whitfield come, came to Jonathan Edwards' church, Jonathan Edwards sat in the front row and wept as Whitfield preached. And Sarah Edwards wrote to her brother and said, He is a born orator. You have already heard of his deep-toned, yet clear and melodious voice. Oh, it is perfect music to listen to that alone. I really have a hard time understanding what she means. What does it mean that it sounds like music to hear somebody speak? Uh, a very unusual voice, I would to say the least. But she says this, you remember that David Hume thought it worth going 20 miles to hear him speak. And Garrick, who was an actor, said he would move men to tears in pronouncing the word Mesopotamia. <laughs> he, she said, it is truly wonderful to see what a spell this preacher often casts over an audience by proclaiming the simplest truths of the Bible. He's not telling them anything they've never heard before, but he casts a spell on them. <laughs> So this man was driven, eloquent, intelligent, empathetic, single-minded, steel-willed, venturesome, and had a voice like a trumpet that could be heard by thousands outdoors. These are his natural gifts. So a person like that comes around about once every thousand years that has the natural gifts that Whitfield had. But that's not all he had, and that's, why, that's not why he was so powerful. He could hold people's attention that weren't even interested in what he was saying, but only God can convert the soul. And when Whitfield was 22 years old, he went from death to life. He was born again. The union of God, uh, the, the, the book he, he wrote or that he read, the true religion is the marriage of the of union of God with the soul of man. Whitfield experienced that. And God shone his heavenly light into his soul that, so that he saw and valued the glory of God in the face of Christ. And he was transfixed by that heavenly vision. And after that, he was never the same. His whole life was completely and utterly devoted to Jesus Christ and spreading his gospel and multiplying his kingdom. 
After his conversion, his natural gifts didn't vanish, but Whitfield employed those natural gifts completely in the service of Christ. And in addition to that, God was pleased to pour out a supernatural anointing on him when he preached. So my conclusion is that Whitfield's power in preaching came from natural gifts, but not just that, also added to that is the new birth, and added to that is the anointing of the Holy Spirit when he preached, and all that combined together made his preaching extremely powerful, so that God used it in the conversion of thousands and thousands of people. Wherever Whitfield went, from the beginning of his ministry to the end of his life, he would attract huge crowds. Now, he came to Boston early on, about 1740. The population of Boston was 8,000 people. The first Sunday he preached, there were 3,000 people that showed up. So almost half of the entire population of the city came to hear him. The second Sunday he came, the he was preaching to 8,000 people. So... There's 8,000 people live there. 8,000 people came to hear him. The third Sunday, 15,000 people came. He said, where where'd they come from? There's only 8,000 people that live there. They're traveling 20 miles in every direction on horseback or boat or carriage or how, walking however they can to get there. I mean, <laughs> we, we can't really imagine. It was like a sensation. He took the whole colonies by storm. <clears throat> That's why I'd like to go back and just witness this because I, we can hardly imagine what it was like during those times. But we don't have to imagine because there was a farmer by the name of Nathan Cole who actually wrote an account. Listen to this really carefully because this is absolutely fascinating. I love to go back in time and, and read the firsthand reports of people who are actually there and what it was like. Listen to what he has to say. Now, please God to send Mr. Whitfield into this land. I had heard of his preaching at Philadelphia like one of the old apostles and how many thousands were flocking to hear him preach the gospel and great numbers were being converted to Christ. I felt the Spirit of God drawing me by conviction. I longed to see and hear him and wished he would come this way. Now this guy's not a, a believer at this point, but he longed to come and see and hear him. And I soon heard he was coming to New York and the Jerseys and that great multitudes were flocking after him under great concern for their souls, and many were converted, which brought on my concern more and more, hoping soon to see him. But next I heard he was at Long Island, then at Boston, and next at Northampton. Then one morning, all of a sudden, about eight or nine o'clock, there came a messenger and said, Mr. Whitfield preached at Hartford and Wethersfield yesterday and is to preach at Middletown this morning at ten o'clock. I was in my field at work. I dropped my tool that I had in my hand and I ran home and I ran through my house and bade my wife get ready quick to go and hear Mr. Whitfield preach at Middletown. I ran to my pasture for my horse with all my might, fearing that I should be too late to hear him. You believe this? This, this happened to him. <laughs> I brought my horse home and soon mounted and took my wife up and went forward as fast as I thought the horse could bear. And when my horse began to be out of breath, I would get down and put my wife on the saddle and bid her ride as fast as she could and not stop or slack for me, except I bade her. And so I would run until I was much out of breath. And then I would mount my horse again. And so I did several times to favor my horse. We improved every moment to get along as if we were fleeing for our lives. 
all the while fearing we should be too late to hear the sermon. Wouldn't it be cool if we had unbelievers being afraid they're going to miss our sermons, Jerome? <laughs> Flocking in so there's no room to press them into the house? That's what it was like. For we had 12 miles to ride double in little more than an hour. So it's like a little before 9 o'clock. The sermon starts at 10. It's 12 miles away. How are we going to do it, wife? Well, we're going to run and we're going to gallop our horse and we're going to do everything we can to make it to Middletown by 10 o'clock. He says this, And when we came within about half a mile of the road that comes down from Hartford, Weathersfield, and Stepney to Middletown, on high land I saw before me a cloud or fog rising. I first thought it came from the Connecticut River, but as I came nearer the road, I heard a noise, something like a low rumbling thunder, and presently found it was the noise of horses' feet coming down the road, and this cloud was a cloud of dust made by the horses' feet. It arose some rods into the air over the tops of the hills and trees. <laughs> The, the horse's hooves are, I mean, this is 50 feet in the air from, from them stampeding into town. Okay. <laughs> I just can't believe this stuff when I read it. <laughs> I could see men and horses slipping along in the cloud like shadows. And as I drew nearer, it seemed like a steady stream of horses and their riders, scarcely a horse more than his length behind another. It's like you're driving your car and there's one car length between each car and you can't get in. You, no one will let you in to get into the road. All of a lather and foam with sweat, their breath rolling out of their nostrils in the cloud of dust every jump. Every horse seemed to go with all his might to carry his rider to hear news from heaven for the saving of souls. It made me tremble to see the sight, how the world was in a struggle. I found a vacancy between two horses to slip in my horse. And my wife said, Law, our clothes will all be spoiled. See how they look? Typical wife, right? She's looking at her clothes. They're all dust everywhere. For they were so covered with dust that they looked almost of one color. Coats, hats, shirts, and horses. Everything was covered with dust. <laughs> we went down into the stream. The stream of horses. I heard no man speak a word all the way three miles. That's interesting. This wasn't a jolly event where people laughing and carrying on. It was sober. They were intent and intense about wanting to hear the gospel that could save their soul. They weren't speaking. They were thinking. They were meditating. But every single one of them was pressing forward in great haste. And when we got to the old meeting house, there was a great multitude. It was said to be three or 4,000 people assembled together. Now, Middletown, who's ever heard of Middletown? This is probably some small village, and everybody from everywhere else is crowding into it to fill it up. We got off from our horses and shook off the dust, and the ministers were then coming to the meeting house. I turned and looked toward the great river and saw ferry boats running swift forward and forward, bringing over loads of people. The oars rode nimble and quick. Everything, men, horses, and boats seemed to be struggling for life. The land and the banks over the river looked black with people and horses all along the 12 miles. I saw no man at work in his field, but all seemed to be gone. Nobody cares about work. No, they, they, they put a closed for the day sign on the shop. They lock it up. And everyone's going to hear Whitfield. 
Now, wouldn't that be awesome if some evangelist came to Sacramento and every shop is closed because nobody wants to miss it? That's what's going on in the Great Awakening. When I saw Mr. Whitfield come upon the scaffold, that's his pulpit, he looked almost angelical. Now, this is 1740. He was born in 1714. He's 26 years old. He's a young, slim, slender youth before some thousands of people with a bold, undaunted countenance. And my hearing how God was with him everywhere as he came along, it solemnized my mind and put me into a trembling fear before he began to preach. For he looked as if he was clothed with authority from the great God, and a sweet, solemn solemnity sat upon his brow. And my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. In other words, he was converted, this Nathan Cole who wrote the story at, at that particular day. Now, that's the longest account I'm going to read to you, but I thought I had to. It's so fascinating to me. This is what Benjamin Franklin had to say. He said, It was wonderful to see the change soon made by his preaching in the manners of the inhabitants of Philadelphia. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious. That's from an unbeliever's pen. So there's a great heaven-sent revival sweeping through the colonies. Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards are two of the key men, Gilbert Tennant as well, two of the three of the key men that God is using to spearhead this work, but it's just like wildfire spreading from town to town. So the power in his preaching. Let's talk now about something else, his Catholic spirit. Now by Catholic, I don't mean Roman Catholic. I mean Catholic in its sense of being universal. His universal spirit. And by that, I mean, Whitfield was not a man who would just go and preach to people within his own denomination, the Church of England. Whitfield was a lover of true Christians wherever they were found, whether they were Baptists or Congregationalists or Presbyterians or of the Secession Church or the Free Church or wherever they were, Whitfield loved them and Whitfield would preach to them. He wasn't interested in starting a denomination and he didn't espouse that narrow-minded opinion that his own church had a, had a monopoly on the truth. He loved everyone who loved the Lord Jesus. Did they exercise repentance toward God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and live holy lives? Then they were his brethren, no matter what church they were a member of. Whitfield would preach in any church that invited him. When he traveled to Scotland, the Erskines wanted him to preach to no others than to their own church. They were uh, in the secession church in Scotland. Whitfield asked them why, and they responded because they were the Lord's people. And this was more than Whitfield could stand. He asked them if there were no other Lord's people but themselves. He told them if all the others were the devil's people, that they certainly had more need to be preached to than them. <laughs> And then he wound up by informing them that if the Pope himself would lend him his pulpit, he would gladly proclaim the righteousness of Christ in it. In other words, he didn't care who it was. He was going to preach the gospel to them. In fact, shortly before he died, he requested that John Wesley preach his funeral sermon. Now, if you know anything about the times, Wesley and Whitfield had a, a theological rift. 
Wesley was an Arminian. Whitfield was a Calvinist. They disagreed about many important doctrines. They disagreed their entire life. They started off in the Holy Club together. Later on, both were converted. One looked at free will as the way salvation worked. The other looked at free grace as the way salvation worked. They never came together on those issues. Wesley and Whitfield remained in their opposing theological beliefs their entire life. But when Whitfield was about to die, he requested that it was John Wesley that would come and preach his funeral sermon, which tells you something about his character. He knew that Wesley was a true lover of Jesus. And these other doctrines, though important, were not utterly important, that he wanted Wesley to stand and preach his sermon. And he sets, I think, a good example for us. Doctrine is important, but you and I should be lovers of all true lovers of Jesus wherever they're found. Pentecostal churches, non-Pentecostal churches, Presbyterian churches, Baptist churches, congregational churches, even if you find true believers in Catholic church or in other places that you wouldn't think to find them. If they're true lovers of Jesus and they're living holy lives and they've repented of sin and they trust him for salvation, we wrap our arms around them and we call them brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a good example for us. And then one other thing about his life I wanted to mention, and that's his self-effacing humility. I think one of the reasons God was pleased to use Whitfield was because he was a very humble man. And he was humble not because he told you he was humble. He never promoted himself. He desired only that Jesus Christ be glorified. He would not allow a Christian movement to be named after him. He would not allow a school, a seminary to be named after him. He would not allow a denomination to be started in his name. He would constantly say things like, I am the less than the least of all. The last piece of paper we possess that bears his handwriting. At the end of the letter, he concludes with this, I am the least of all the Lord's servants. You often find phrases like this, let the name of Whitfield perish. Let the name of Christ be glorified. Or let the name of Whitfield die, that the cause of Christ be glorified. Or I am viler than the vilest and stand amazed at his employing such a wretch as I am. And you, you think, well, how could he feel that way? You look at his outward life and he was a holy man, devoted all of his time to the service of Christ, but yet he, he was aware of his own sin inside. And he fought pride. Pride because we all, he, we all fight pride, don't we? Pride because we are somebody or because we think we're somebody. But what the record shows is that he fought this fight valiantly and he put to death pride again and again and the lure of the vanity of human praise. Now, can you imagine being the most famous person in the English-speaking world? Maybe second to the king or, king or queen of England. You know, that, that's how famous you are. Not letting it go to your head and, and vaunt you, yourself up with this pride and this egotism. Um, he says, it is difficult to go through the fiery trial of popularity and applause untainted. He knew that. He said, commendations. One of his friends was commending him and lifting him up. And he said, commendations or even the hinting at them are poison to a mind addicted to pride. A nail never sinks deeper than when dipped in oil. 
Pray for me, dear sir, and heal the wounds you have made. To God alone give glory. To sinners nothing belongs but shame and confusion. Now I can see why God might use a man like that that was unwilling to take to steal the praise and the glory from God. He confessed publicly the foolishness and the mistakes of his earlier years. He confessed to a friend in 1741, our most holy thoughts are tinctured with sin and want the atonement of the mediator. That's our most holy thoughts. He cast himself on the free grace that he preached so powerfully. And he said, I am nothing, have nothing, can do nothing without God. What, although I may, like a polished sepulcher, appear a little beautiful without, yet within I am full of pride, self-love, and all manner of corruption. However, by the grace of God I am what I am, and if it should please God to make me instrumental to do the least good, not unto me but unto him be all the glory. I know no other reason why Jesus has put me into the ministry than because I am the chief of sinners and therefore fittest to preach free grace to a world lying in the wicked one. So we've looked at some of the aspects of his life and I hope these aspects will inspire you and encourage you and motivate you to holy living. We talked about his evangelistic zeal. Do we know something about an evangelistic zeal? How much effort do we put out to see the salvation of souls? I mean, really, let's be honest. When we compare ourselves to someone whose whole life was completely devoted to that, you know, our missional community goes out maybe once a week or two weeks or sometimes once a month, and we think we're doing a great service to God. You know, that's, that's a very, it's actually a pretty small pittance when you, when you really think about it. Let his evangelistic zeal motivate you to greater works of Christ. And then the power in preaching, we can't control this, but let's pray that our witness to people comes with power from on high, that God would actually use the words of the gospel to bring, bring people to Christ. In his Catholic spirit, let's learn from that. Not to be think, well, hey, we're the bridge, we've got all the truth. <laughs> or we're non-denominational Bible Christians. Those guys over there, they can't be as good as us. You know, all of that narrow-minded, prideful, it's just garbage, and it's displeasing to God, and it's sin. And we need to throw our arms of love around all true believers everywhere. And then the final thing we looked about was his humility. We all need a heavy dose of that, don't we? Because pride is something that we have to fight with constantly. And when someone praises you, even if you don't say it outwardly, let's inwardly say, Lord Jesus, to you be the glory for that. Whatever good is in me, I know it comes from you. Thank you, Lord, that you could use someone like me. Amen? Lord, I do pray that you would cause us, Lord, to be encouraged and motivated today to be more committed to your service, Lord. And we do pray that you would give results to us, that we would see people come to know Jesus Christ. Help us devote ourselves completely to you, Lord Jesus, this day. In your name, amen.